Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures in government law and journalism for a discussion about the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We pause our weekly canvassing of the news and the many points of national turmoil to take up a pressing crisis of deep and growing proportions in the United States. And that is loneliness. As it turns out, levels of chronic loneliness in the United States have been increasing across the board in recent years, to the point where it's an identified public health crisis affecting more than half of the population by some measures. There are a number of possible culprits, from concrete factors like COVID and social media to more amorphous ones, like how kids and the rest of us just don't hang out the way we used to. Likewise, there are a number of possible ways to ameliorate the problem, though some of them seem almost wishful thinking for social arrangements of a bygone world. It may seem like just a fact of life, a concomitant of increasing isolation, constant comparisons through social media, and characteristically American emphasis on individual achievement over community health. But there are researchers and public servants who are focusing on loneliness as the public health and social crisis that it is, working hard to raise awareness, examine its profile, and take steps toward solutions on the individual and community levels. To explore the magnitude, the consequences, the causes, and the possible prescriptions for what we have recently recognized as a nationwide crisis, we welcome an ideal panel of professionals and policymakers who have been sounding the alarm for several years. And they are Professor Julianne Holt Lundstad. Professor Holt Lundstad is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, where she focuses on the long term health effects of social isolation and where she runs the Social Connections and Health Research Lab. She is also the founding scientific chair for the U.S. Coalition to End Social Isolation and Loneliness. Professor Holt Lundstedt, thank you for joining this special episode of Talking Feds. Thank you. Dr. Vivek Morthy. Dr. Morthy is the 21st Surgeon General of the United States, also known as the nation's doctor. During his tenure, he has worked to address a number of critical public health issues, including the proliferation of health misinformation, youth mental health, and social isolation and loneliness. Dr. Morthy also served as Surgeon General under President Obama, and he is the author of the best-selling book, Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. And just last week, his office released the first ever Surgeon General's advisory on the topic of loneliness, making this a particularly timely episode. Dr. Morthy, thank you so much for joining Talking Feds. Thanks so much, Harry. And Senator Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy is the junior senator from Connecticut. He currently serves on the Appropriations, Foreign Relations, and Health Education, Labor, and Pensions Committees. Prior to his election to the Senate, Senator Murphy represented Connecticut's 5th District in the House of Representatives for three terms. 
After the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012, Senator Murphy emerged as one of the nation's leading voices for common sense reforms to reduce gun violence. Senator, thank you so much for joining this special episode of Talking Feds. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start with maybe some basic question. You know, presumably loneliness has been with us for as long as human society has existed. Yet there does seem to be something new going on. Are we just more aware of the incidence of loneliness or has there truly been a spike in recent years? Certainly there has been a lot of attention recently and particularly in light of the recent global pandemic where so many of us experienced isolation and loneliness firsthand. And this has raised some awareness of this, but of course, isolation and loneliness have been a growing problem long before. And in fact, we have evidence that some of these trends have been increasing over time, over in some cases, decades, when we look at various indicators. And so while we may be more aware of it, there does seem to be some indication that it is a growing problem. Dr. Morthy, you, you, you concur? I think this is a combination of, of increased awareness and society changing in ways that have ironically made us uh, more lonely. And if you think about the last few decades, so much has changed so quickly in society. We move around more. We change jobs more often. How we communicate with one another has profoundly changed in part by technology, but technology has also profoundly changed our interactions in general with one another, has shifted more of our, what used to be offline interactions, in-person interactions to online interactions, which can sometimes be convenient, but can also be less personal and we can often forge uh, weaker connections. So the bottom line is a lot has changed and it has had impacts on our connections with one another that we have not fully accounted for. And part of the reason that we released last week a Surgeon General's advisory for the first time on loneliness and isolation is we wanted to call the country's attention to a couple of things. Number one, how widespread loneliness and isolation are. You know, one in two people in America, one in two adults report experiencing loneliness. But we also wanted people to know this actually has real consequences for both our mental health as well as for our physical health. And this is why it's so important for us to not only talk about, but to address, which is why we also lay out concrete steps that individuals and families, but also communities and government can take to help build a more connected nation. Let me follow up for a second on methodology. So you mentioned that half of Americans report a certain incidence of loneliness. Is that the basic measure? What do you do? I know this bedevils psychologists in many fields, but what do you do to actually be sure you're capturing the right kind of emotional reactions you're looking for? Yeah, well, of course, because loneliness is a subjective personal experience, self-report is the way that it is often measured. And so these figures come from large nationally representative samples. And certainly there are different studies that have measured this in, in a variety of different ways. And so, you know, sometimes there, it can be hard to pinpoint an exact number, but as we see the same measures being consistently used over time, we're seeing a large consistency in terms of demonstrating that a large portion of Americans are isolated, lonely, or both. By self-reporting, essentially. Self-reporting, yes, yes. 
Senator, I, I don't want to put you at a disadvantage with your very learned colleagues here, because I know you come at it from a policy issue, but you've become an expert in your own right. Do you have a sense of whether this crisis has hit all cohorts of American society kind of evenly or whether it's been especially severe for some groups? Yeah, I think we're really learning the extent of this problem. And of course, it's deeply integrated into sort of other crises of meaning and identity that are facing very distinct segments of the population. So, you know, for kids, you're seeing elevated levels of of loneliness and isolation, but, you know, that's also connected into all sorts of other feelings that kids are reporting high levels of, whether it be feelings of envy or narcissism. So you've got a really interesting set of sort of new phenomenon happening for kids. You also see these elevated levels amongst men, amongst white men, but that's not coincidental to a period of time in which, you know, they are losing other types of of positive connection to culture. They're losing sort of a sense of economic and social place. So I, I think none of this is viewed in isolation, but my sense is that this is very acute amongst young people and teenagers. This is particularly in the pandemic, a problem amongst younger unmarried Americans who are often living alone. And then I think it's a problem for men and often for white men, rural men who are uh, going through broader kind of existential crises about their place in the world, which is very different today than the world in which their fathers and grandfathers lived in. Although you could say, couldn't you, that their grandfathers lived in a very different world from their great-grandfathers and that envy and narcissism has sort of been with us always. And yet it feels somehow that we have a difference, certainly in degree. What about society in broad has changed so much to bring on so much more loneliness? Yeah. And, and again, I'm in company that can answer better than than I can. I'm an amateur. You know, but listen, my sense is that we made a bet 10 years ago that social media and the means by which we connected to each other virtually were going to be substantively similar from a fulfillment standpoint as in-person connection. And I think that is just not borne out to be true. And so there is something different today in that much of our connection happens like this through a video chat or through text or email. And I just, in the end, I think we figured out that there is something different about being in front of people, about sort of feeling and hearing and smelling them that gives us a sense of satisfaction and emotion that's different. I do also think that there is in this country a transition away from concern for the common good. I think we've always been a hyper-individualistic society. Alexis Stokeville marveled at how Americans were just so focused on themselves and money and financial reward, very different from the societies he came from. But I think for a long time, we mixed that together with a concern for the community that we felt better about ourselves when we were doing well, but also when the community was doing well. And I do think we've lost a bit of that. I think we are you know, increasingly taught that the only thing that really matters is our success, our personal individual success. And so when that transition occurs, then other people's success is more often met with envy than it is with celebration. And I don't know how to categorize that transition, but I I do think it's happened in our society. We've just become dangerously hyper 
inwardly focused. And, you know, Rick Weisbrod up here at Harvard sort of talks about how the culture of therapy and self-help has been a part of that transition. I'm not sure how much I buy into that, but I think that's an element of it. So quite a lot is packed in there, but two big chunks are social media, which I want to get to in just one minute. But Senator Murphy has twice talked about envy and narcissism. And we have a sense that maybe there's some connection with those personal feelings and loneliness, but it may also seem counterintuitive, or maybe it seems as if loneliness is a kind of pathology, a adaptive feeling run amok. If we can posit that we are more envious than we were before, why would that promote greater loneliness? You know, adding to what he just mentioned is that over time, we've also raised the possibility of being able to meet so many of our needs on our own. So as he talks about being independent, right? And oftentimes the goal of, you know, raising a child is is for them to become independent, right? But throughout human history, we've been interdependent on others. It's been crucial for survival. And with many of these modern conveniences, not only can we get many of our basic needs met on our own, but it makes it more and more and more convenient to spend more time in isolation. We don't have to interact with people often in many of our everyday lives. And so the more and more these things become more convenient, the more time we're spending in isolation. And we may not be meeting these biological social needs that we've had throughout human history. And so, you know, part of that might be this idea of of focused on the self and my own needs and not this interdependence of having to rely on each other. And as, as I help others, I recognize that they will help me in return. And so we've lost perhaps a sense of interdependence and, and focus more inward on a sense of independence. Yeah, building on what uh, Senator Murphy and uh, Professor Holland said, said I, there are, I think, a couple of things worth emphasizing, too, which is that to build relationships, you need social skills. You need the capacity for empathy. You need to be able to understand and be curious about other people's experiences in life. And that doesn't just happen automatically all the time. Over centuries, it happened because, as Julianne was saying, we were in circumstances where we were constantly interacting with other people, whether it was when we went to the market to buy goods or when we went to trade, you know, when we went to school or whatever the experiences were with our neighbors. But we're finding that fewer and fewer people have these in-person interactions. In fact, if you look at the period between 2003 and 2019, and uh, among young people, you find that there was a 50% decrease in the time that they had in person with one another. And when I travel around the country and talk to young people and to parents, I hear time and time again, especially from parents and from teachers, that these basic skills in understanding emotions, how to understand and process your emotions and the emotions of other people so that you can foster healthy interactions, that these are these are lacking. And these are some things that we have to focus on developing. We don't typically think about school necessarily as having the responsibility for investing kids with the social emotional skills that they need to build healthy relationships. But what we are seeing clearly is that that has to come from somewhere. It's not always coming from communities or from families in an environment where kids aren't interacting a whole lot in person. But this is the gap that we need to fill uh, if we want to truly build healthy relationships. And finally, I'll just say this. There really is a difference between what's happening now, what's happened over hundreds or thousands of years. Yes, change has always been 
a part of human life. And yes, loneliness has been a part of the human experience for millennia. But in the last few decades, the pace of change and the extent to which our lives are being affected by that change has dramatically accelerated in ways that we have not seen before in human civilization. We've not had technology that's profoundly changed every aspect of how we interact with one another. And it's done so not just in one city or one community, but in the entire country and across the entire world. So yes, this is unprecedented. And look, this is not about tech being good or bad. Tech is a tool at the end of the day. And the question is, how do we design it? How do we harness it to benefit us and not harm us? And what we're now recognizing is that for all the benefits technology has brought us, there are some downside risks that we have not accounted for. We're now understanding what those are, and we've got to manage those because otherwise we're seeing real consequences for our connections with one another. Well, that really resonates, I think, and particularly the sort of Instacart society and, and living alone. To me, this is a maybe very simple-minded way to put it, but you know, school and other places seemed a much easier way to to form connections because there was just so much hanging out and hanging out has just plummeted, it seems to me. All right, there's so much to talk about in causes here, but I want to get to solutions, except let's pick up the big 900-pound gorilla in the room. So social media you hear again and again is a really huge culprit here. And it's not obvious, right? Because social media is, by definition, social. My kids at dinner are completely tuned out in one hand, but they're also socializing in a sense. Or is that the issue? What is so profoundly antisocial about social media that it plunges us into loneliness when it feels as if, at least initially, you're being plugged into some huge community and you can just, you know, a smorgasbord of whatever you want socially? It's really a question and it bears understanding that social media can have mixed benefits. For some kids, it can be very helpful in connecting them with friends and especially, you know, let's say a member of the LGBTQ community or you're part of another group that has been marginalized or not a lot of people around you who have similar backgrounds or life experiences. It can be a lifeline in some ways to be able to connect with other youth online. But the fact that there are some benefits doesn't mean that all kids are benefiting. And in fact, what we're seeing is that there are some kids who I believe really are harmed through their experience of social media. I'll tell you the three things that kids tell me most commonly when I travel around the country about social media. They say it often makes them feel worse about themselves. It often makes them feel worse about their friendships, but they can't get off of it. And if you think about that, what we have, I think, assumed over time, which is incorrect, is that quantity of interactions equals quality of relationships. And that is not true. You know, when you just scroll through some your feed, let's say on social media, and you're just seeing updates about what everyone is doing, it turns out that doesn't always make you feel more connected to them. As many young people tell me around the country, that often makes them feel left out. They see people doing all kinds of things without them. They're comparing themselves constantly to other people. Look, people have been comparing themselves to others for millennia, but to have hundreds of posts that you're encountering sometimes in a day, where you're seeing people's adjusted doctored pictures, you're seeing the best parts of their life being posted online. And even though you know that that's curated, it's not representative of all of their life, that can make you feel bad by comparison. And finally, just consider this too. Young people, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, they're different from adults. Their brains are at a sensitive stage of development. Their relationships are also developing and their own sense of self and identity and self-esteem is being built during that time. And we know that kids in that stage are especially sensitive 
to social comparison, which is exactly what is dramatically accelerated on social media platforms. So the bottom line is, do I want kids to be able to reap the benefits of technology? Yes. But I want the same safety standards or an attention to safety that we pay to so many other products that kids use to also be applied to social media so that our children can enjoy a safe experience and not be exposed to the kind of harmful content that so many of them are exposed to now and not experience the type of self-comparison, degradation of self-esteem and diminishing of relationships that far too many children are going through right now. I agree with everything that the Surgeon General said, uh, both you know, of us experienced this through the prism of being parents. I've got a, a teenager and a preteen. This is a fundamentally different technology. I understand a lot of people say, well, TV sucked in kids in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Why is this any different than the fight that parents had to get their kids away from after-school cartoons? Well, this is just a much more powerful and much more purposefully and effectively addictive technology. I mean, we've never seen anything like it that is in real time exploring the brains of our children, probing those brains to figure out exactly what will keep them on their screen on a minute by minute basis and delivering that content in real time. That is fundamentally different than anything that has come before. And so in addition to everything that Vivek talked about in terms of how it sort of drives these feelings of envy and lack of sort of meeting certain peer standards. It also is just an enormous time suck. Some of social media is interactive, but a lot of it isn't. I mean, when I watch my kids interact with social media, most of it is not very social. It's just them watching stupid videos. It sure doesn't look that way. <laughs> and it's entertaining. It keeps them locked in. But I will tell you, there are just millions of kids all across this country who used to make the decision to walk outside and play with their friends that now just make the decision to sit on that phone. And there are tons of parents who are stressed out, who are working multiple jobs, who don't have the time to sort of set up purposeful play dates with neighbors and are unfortunately dependent on those screens to occupy their kids, to keep their kids safe and in the house often. The amount of time that these technologies take away from opportunities for personal interaction is kind of a pretty big part of the problem here. Another challenge is that, as we just talked about, there are both benefits and potential harms to this. And of course, we all want to be able to harness the benefits and and get rid of the harms, but it becomes incredibly challenging even from a research standpoint to identify those things because the algorithms are constantly changing. And so as we try and study something and study how this is impacting various people and how they use it, it's constantly evolving, making that even more challenging task to accomplish. And let me just also just highlight one thing, which I think all of us feel because we're all parents on this call, which is that the amount of strain that this is placing on parents is really quite profound. The number one question I get when I talk to parents around the country is about social media. They want to know if it's hurting their children and they want to know what to do about it. And this is really difficult because this technology evolves very, very quickly. But also we have some of the best product designers in the world who are designing these platforms and often to maximize the amount of time that our children spend on them. And so we're asking a parent and a child 
to figure out how to manage a platform that's developed by the most talented minds in the world, that, that is not a fair fight. And parents are telling us that they are struggling and that they need help. So we need to have their backs and we need to make it easier for parents to not only protect themselves from the harms of social media and protect their children from the harms of social media, but we need to instill confidence in parents that as these technologies develop, that there will be guardrails and that there will be safety measures that have to be observed so that they know if their child is going to use these platforms down the line, that they're going to be helped and not harmed. The center actually is, has introduced with others a bipartisan bill to try to address that. I'll just say as to this fair fight, it seems so true. It's really interesting that children around the country, Dr. Morthy, report how lonely they feel and, and how social media makes them feel because try to pry it from their hands when they're actually on the, no, everything's fine, everything's fine. They certainly would see it as a battle. Okay, there's so much more to be said about this. We're also finding concrete health effects from the loneliness epidemic. Yes, it's not just, you know, I'm sitting on my couch, but it's heart attacks and increased mortality. Yes. What are we learning about the impact on public health? Yeah. So I've spent over two decades now studying these health impacts. And of course, I'm not the first one to, to study this. And so we have decades of scientific evidence that generally all converges on the same conclusion. And that is being more socially connected across a variety of ways is protective for our health and well-being and our longevity. On the other hand, lacking social connection, whether that's isolation, loneliness, or having poor quality relationships, that this is associated with greater risk of, of poor health and poor well-being and increased risk for premature mortality. So just to give you an example, in one of my meta-analyses of data across the globe from over 3.4 million people, what we found was that people who are lonely have a 26% increased risk for earlier death, those who are isolated, 29%. And this is an increased risk for earlier death from all causes. So we often link this or assume that it might be linked to suicide, which of course has been also a consequence of this. But this is death from all causes, including disease-related causes of death. We also have good evidence of the effects on other kinds of chronic illnesses. So cardiovascular disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes. There's some evidence on cancer. We also have evidence in terms of mental and behavioral health outcomes, including things like depression, anxiety, suicidality, and addiction. We also have evidence of cognitive health outcomes, including things like mild cognitive impairment and dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. It even increases risk for more acute kinds of illnesses, not just the chronic illnesses. So we have evidence that it increases susceptibility to cold and flu viruses and can affect our immune system in a way that also makes it less likely for us to mount an effective immune response to a flu vaccine. And there's even one study that showed reduced ability to mount an effective immune response to the COVID-19 vaccine as well. So we see both these long-term health effects and some short-term health effects as well. And Senator, you've seen, I think, a connection even with other antisocial behaviors that maybe do come from this profound isolation. But you said you were first drawn to the topic from your longstanding and intense interest in gun violence. Yes. How did that connection come home to you? First, I think it's always difficult and 
dangerous to try to connect in a conversation about loneliness or mental illness with gun violence, right? So we, we have higher rates of loneliness in the United States, but there are plenty of other countries in the world that have lonely people and they don't end up involved in mass shootings or homicides or or even suicides at the rate they are in the United States because of the ease of access that we provide those individuals to very powerful weapons. But yes, there is no doubt that if you sort of survey individuals who have engaged in episodes of mass violence, they have reported ahead of that crime feeling fundamentally disconnected from their peers, uh, from society. They often use the words that we're using in this podcast. They feel lonely. They feel isolated. And so, you know, to me, the fastest way to reduce gun violence is to make sure that people who are feeling that way can't walk into a store, buy a military-style assault weapon, and days later commit a crime with it. But of course, there's no doubt that if you're attacking the issue of isolation and loneliness, you're reducing the chances of harm. I also think that there's a conversation around other places that people search for connection and meaning that are not as healthy as the places historically that people have found that connection through social organizations, through family, through place, through school. Uh, And so the rise in more dangerous ideologies, uh, hate groups, political organizations defined by division. I think that's driven in part by people who are feeling pretty lonely, pretty alone, who are lacking positive places to create connection and ultimately search out for connection, finding it in much more dangerous and divisive places. I finally have a touchstone to my own law enforcement experience to offer because it's it's just totally true. The rampant shooting happens and I know you're just waiting that it's going to be a low status individual who is anywhere from a nondescript to faintly, you know, reviled in his immediate group. But he, then let's just wait for the social media to, to pour in and there's a whole world that they are deeply enmeshed in and gives them uh, presumably the pathological social connections that then lead them to kind of play out. All right, one final point that just from what you said, Senator Murphy, and of course, there's a bigger factor for gun violence staring us in the face when it comes to the United States, which has twice as many guns as any other country per capita in the world. But your mention of Japan, I think is intriguing. Are there some any kind of attempts for comparative studies of communities or nations that have become less individuated, less what de Tocqueville says about America, and as a consequence, have less of an epidemic of loneliness? I think if you look not even across the world, but even within the United States, you find places and spaces where efforts to rebuild connection are actually working. And that's actually very important because sometimes people can look at these large intractable problems we have and feel, gosh, there's no hope. But this is a place where we actually do know how to rebuild the social fabric of our country. It's not easy to do. It requires individuals and families and community organizations and policymakers to all step up and take action. But it is doable. And I I think, for example, about the schools that I have visited uh, around the country that have built student-driven programs to actually connect young people to one another, to help build relationships and to make sure that people aren't left alone at lunchtime, for example, which is one of the most lonely times of the day for students. Um, I also think about programs that I've seen in the community where people are 
building spaces where older men can come together, for example, and do woodwork and do metalwork called men's sheds, recognizing that a lot of older men, especially when they retire or when they encounter physical illness, that's a real trigger for loneliness and for isolation among them. And that has downstream health impacts. And these kind of initiatives have been helping. And I just think about individuals too. Look, there are people all across our country who are stepping up in their own way to build connection. I think about Sarah Harmeyer, who I talked to a while ago in Texas, uh, who moved there to Dallas and didn't really know anybody. He was kind of scared to know what to do, but her father helped her build this really long wooden table, put it in her yard, and she decided to have a potluck and emailed all of these neighbors who she didn't know. It was a little scary, but she found that she got so many RSVPs, she couldn't even have everybody over to her house. And she just started doing potluck after potluck. And she realized two things. One, people really want to meet one another. And two, a little bit of effort can go a long way to forging connection. So you don't read about these stories in the papers every day. You don't hear them broadcast on the news. But the bottom line is the ingredients for a social connection are there. The need and desire for people to be connected is there. And that is deeper and more fundamental than the differences that we may hear about. And so this is a time for us to recognize that social connection is not a nice to have. It's a necessary to have. It impacts not just our mental and physical health, but it affects how we perform at work. It impacts our children's performance in school. It impacts our level of civic engagement because it's the fundamental fuel that allows us to show up and be who we are. Maybe it's another casualty of social media. It actually gets hard to have like a real conversation face to face. This might be a good time, Senator, for you to explain in broad strokes the proposals in the, the new bill, especially focused on younger Americans. Interesting group of senators introduced this bill, Tom Cotton and Katie Britt, two very conservative Republican senators, Brian Schatz and myself, progressive Democrats. What unites us is that we're all parents struggling with how to keep our kids safe online. Uh, and I think to the Surgeon General's point, we really do feel it's not a fair fight right now and that we have a difficult time as busy parents protecting our kids because we really don't know what the algorithm is delivering to them on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, one day my kid may be feeling okay and he's getting just kind of funny, interesting videos, but the next day he may not be feeling great. And very quickly that algorithm can deliver to him some really dangerous content that sort of pushes him down a rabbit hole. So we decided that we were gonna give parents some new tools. So our bill says the social media companies have to have a system by which parents consent to anybody above the age of 13 and younger than 18 being on that platform. I think that's important to get parents into that conversation. It says that they have to yeah, actually put teeth into the commitment they've already made, which is to keep very young kids, 13 and, and under, off the system. They've got to do age verification. And then probably most interestingly, our bill says that for that population that's on social media between the age of 13 and 18, the social media companies can't use the algorithm to boost them content based upon the data that they collect from that child. So what we're saying is that those algorithms are often really dangerous for these kids who are swiping and clicking on stuff that often is just connected to their insecurities, to their anxieties, and that those algorithms, you know, adults can handle them, but probably a 14-year-old brain cannot. So we say that ultimately a technology like TikTok cannot take the data it's collecting on a child and use it to perfect an algorithm because sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's just 
delivering more interesting, fun, relevant content to a child, but often it's delivering really dark, dangerous content to kids who are in crisis. Um, there's a story of a young man last year who committed suicide. His parents got their hands on his TikTok account and they saw the very content that he was looking at right before he killed himself. And it was some of the most upsetting stuff you could ever imagine. Essentially snuff videos, videos begging this young man to kill himself. And the social media companies have had a long time to fix this, to deliver more healthy content to kids in crisis. They haven't. And so our approach is to just say, until you hit 18, your private information can't be used to boost the algorithm because often that leads you into um, really dark, dangerous places as a kid. And just one quick follow-up. So the enforcement is basically through regulation of the social media companies themselves. Is it the sort of thing that kids can lie about to get around or where's the teeth to making it happen? Yeah, I, there's nothing in our bill that's going to punish an individual, a kid or a parent. The czar of social media would like to see you now. Right? <laughs> right. So, no, what we want is for these companies to make a, an honest try at age verification. We understand that it won't work all the time, but the honor system that we have today is just absolutely not working. And so these companies say that if you're 12 years old, you can't be on TikTok, but they have no means to control that. So our bill says these companies have to set up meaningful age verification systems. We understand it won't be foolproof, but it'll mean a lot less eight and nine-year-olds are online watching softcore pornography than are today. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate comes with a bit of a twist as we look to the very top of the wine bottle and ask which is better, cork or screw top? At face value, people think screw top equals cheap wine, which, as it turns out, isn't exactly true. The reason for screw tops is to ensure the wine tastes as the winemaker intended. Cork, which has been used to seal wine bottles for over 100 years, is a proven way to age wine effectively by allowing minute amounts of air to come in contact with the wine. This slowly develops a softer texture and enhances flavor. Now cork, traditional as it is, has a downside called TCA, which causes something called cork taint. Now cork taint, while affecting a very small percentage of wines, can be a big disappointment, causing a musty aroma similar to the smell of wet cardboard and contaminating a great bottle of wine. We turn back again to screw caps, which are cork taint proof, of course, not to mention much easier to open, especially in a kitchen surrounded by witnesses. How the aging process affects wines with a screw cap is yet to be known as wineries continue to test. Whether it's a cork or screw top, at Total Wine & More, our guides will help you find the perfect wine to match your taste. After all, it's not just about what's on top of the bottle, it's what's inside that counts. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. And now, a word from our sponsor, 
the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Lauren Johnson, director of the ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative. Let's be clear, those who want to end access to abortion care did not stop at the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Prosecutors and politicians across the country are now threatening criminal penalties against providers, helpers, and in some instances, those who access abortion care. The attack on reproductive freedom continues, and we will not stop fighting back. In addition to the work the ACLU is doing to stop laws that ban abortion, we're working alongside other reproductive legal rights organizations in the Abortion Defense Network to provide critical legal defense support. The ACLU's Abortion Criminal Defense Initiative is mobilizing a network of skilled criminal defense attorneys to defend people facing criminal investigations or prosecutions for providing, supporting, or obtaining abortion care. Those facing prosecution related to abortion care deserve a zealous defense. They will not stand alone. Let's turn briefly to the public health side and the things, Dr. Holt-Lundstad, you documented. How should we be treating loneliness in individuals? I think the Japan and UK think of it as a cluster of ailments like depression. Do we need to be changing our whole public health approach to patients and loneliness? And what can be done there? Well, since we have good evidence of the strong impacts on health, clearly the health sector can play an important role. Certainly not the only role, and every sector of society has a potential role to play here. But there is some importance in terms of recognizing this as a health-relevant issue, and that as the healthcare industry focuses on prevention, mitigation, and treatment, that it can be integrated into that. So both in preventative care, educating patients that this is actually relevant to their health. We have good data that the general public underestimates the impact on this health. It's primarily viewed as an emotional well-being issue, not a physical health issue. So some education and awareness is, is needed as part of preventive care. We need this to be assessed in medical settings and included in the electronic health record so that patients' health can be tracked over time and identified when there are changes so that if these trigger risk, that efforts can be done. But we also have evidence that when support is included in the actual medical settings, that this increases survival. In fact, it can increase survival by 20% over standard medical treatment alone. So as someone's trying to manage their hypertension, including their caregivers or family members that can help support them manage their illness, that that can lead to better kinds of outcomes in the recovery process. These can be integrated into existing treatment plans. But we also know that some of those needs might need to be addressed outside the clinic. And so oftentimes, whether it's social prescribing or, or referring out to local community resources, understanding a patient's needs and helping them get to the kinds of resources that are actually going to address those needs are going to be really important. And then, of course, there's more of the public health side, right? So outside the clinic and just the education and awareness that needs to occur amongst the population as a whole, the kinds of public health efforts that can occur through policy. Can we just stay inside the clinic for one second? Are there medical treatments? Somebody comes in and they're nothing else but just deeply lonely. Are there prescribed medications that people give at this point or not really? 
So there has been some investigation into pharmaceutical approaches. These haven't quite panned out, but even if it had, one of the things that we recognize is that there are multiple underlying causes of isolation, loneliness, other forms of lacking social connection. And so we need to have diverse kinds of tools to meet those diverse kinds of underlying causes. So for one patient, they have untreated hearing loss, for example. And so because of that, they are withdrawing because it's hard to be part of a conversation. The way in which you would approach that might be very different from someone who, say, for example, recently had a change in their relationship, whether it's through you know death or divorce of an important relationship in their life and are now feeling a sense of loss. And that might differ from someone who has a lot of people in their life, but no one that they can rely on. So they need actual help managing, say, for instance, rides to their medical appointments or managing their medications. And so differing needs may need to be approached in different ways. And so we need to have more than one tool in our toolbox. (laughs) All right. Well, let's move to the level of community, which strikes me as the most important, but the most difficult. My filter on this is this sort of hanging out idea. But you suggested, Dr. Murthy, that there are things that can be done. And in particular, I was struck by your this notion, will I pronounce it right, of the MOE serving the purposes of a community to stand in for what we've lost. It feels a little bit like, oh, join a book club, you'll be fine. And yet there's really something to that. Yeah. Can you can you give us your thoughts? Absolutely. Well, it, it turns out that while we have to take action on many fronts to address loneliness, there's a lot we can do in our individual lives. And that's important because, uh, again, we're not helpless in the face of loneliness. And some of the actions I'm going to describe will feel disarmingly simple, but we have to be intentional about them because we're not living in a world anymore where social connection just happens by default. So if we're not intentional about it, if we're not explicit about the commitments that we're making to one another, uh, then we will just fall by the wayside in terms of our connections and we will become lonelier, which is what's been happening. So what can we do individually? You mentioned the Moai concept. This is something that I came across a few years ago, which is an older Okinawan tradition where young people would come together, their parents would bring them together and they would make an explicit commitment to have each other's backs for however many years they had together going forward. And I actually experimented with that myself in my own life during a time where I was struggling with a sense of loneliness and isolation. This is back in 2018. And I had two good friends who uh, were also, I think, feeling a a bit isolated of sorts. And we decided to be a Moai. What did that mean for us? Well, that meant making an explicit commitment to video conference once a month for two hours so that we can actually talk to each other, see each other, and focus on one another. It meant texting each other, usually on a weekly basis, if not more frequently, if something was concerning us or if we just wanted to share something, good news or bad news. And it meant picking up the phone and calling one another, if there was a question we had or, or something, that we, we, a big decision that was coming up that we wanted to discuss. And I'll tell you that that's simple MOI. There was nothing else to it. It wasn't complicated. Uh, we didn't have to fill out any forms. We didn't have to submit any applications. We just made a commitment among two friends, among three friends rather, but that changed my life. It helped me through so many decisions. It helped me feel closer to friends who are, yes, I'd had them in theory. I knew these two guys for years. But this is the challenge, right? Even if you just know people, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to experience relationships. So we've got to be intentional about this. So so that's just an example of what I did. But even other simple steps like spending 15 minutes a day reaching out to people we care about, 
making the decision to be fully present when you're actually in person with other people or talking to them on the phone. So you're not checking your inbox, you're not checking other things online and distracting yourself. And also making it a point to extend kindness to the people around us, our neighbors, to strangers we encounter, that can go a long way toward helping all of us feel more connected. And I'll just tell you this because it's on my mind. Yesterday, or a few days ago rather, I was traveling and had made a trip to Michigan. And I sat down with a group of, of folks who were working in one of the restaurants there. And I asked them how, how they feel about the state of their lives, the state of the world. And what they said to a T, person after person after person, is they said it makes such a difference when somebody just sits down next to us you know, and, and smiles, when somebody just takes... 10 seconds to just say, hey, I was thinking about you. How are you doing? One guy said that he lost his lighter the week prior and he figured, ah, eh, someone's either going to take it, no one's going to bother with it. But then he showed up the next week and somebody had put the lighter on his desk and he thought, oh my God, somebody thought to do this small thing for me. It made him feel seen and heard. So just keep in mind that in a, in a world where so many people feel invisible and overlooked, that these small acts of kindness, they tell people you're seen, you're valued, and you belong. And that goes a long way toward addressing loneliness. And the social science actually says the guy who gives back the lighter gets a lift as well. Okay, I just wanted to say that you guys are, are visionaries of a certain, especially devoting government attention to this. I can imagine people thinking that it's somehow soft. So I, I just wonder, as you shine a light on this, what kind of response you're getting, including from maybe a crustier older set who think that, you know what, we're talking about loneliness now. Have you found that it's resonating? Do people lump this in and with woke or, you know, soft-headed liberalism, etc.? I wrote this short piece called The Politics of Loneliness several months ago, and I don't know that there's anything that I've written in the last five years that's gotten more feedback more fist bumps in Connecticut and as I travel the country than that piece. In the end, my job is to increase people's quality of life. I'm in the happiness business. And so if I'm not talking about the way that people feel and then trying to tailor public policy to make them feel better, then I don't really think that I'm doing my job. And, you know, government has gotten so big and so you know, much connected to the horse race that we forget that the only reason we exist is to just try to make people's lives better. The second thing that's really important about this conversation is that it is totally apolitical. And the reason that I'm investing a lot more time right now in talking about the way that people feel is that it's a really easy way to build bridges between people that right now see very little connection to each other because people that are feeling lonely are on the right and the left, they're conservative, they're liberal. And when you really start to talk about the solutions to loneliness from a public policy standpoint, they don't easily fall into right-left divisions. That's why you've got me and Tom Cotton working together on a social media bill. So for me, this is just fundamentally connected to my job, making people feel better and using public policy to help people feel better. But I also think in an age where people are so unbelievably frustrated, rightfully so, by the polarization of our political conversation, talking about the way we feel 
And then, and spending some time doing that, like not being ashamed to just spend a little time talking about how we feel, and then methodically moving to policy once we've achieved consensus on the things that we feel that we don't like, I actually think builds a much more constructive political debate ultimately than the way we do things now, which is jump straight into policy, straight into solutions. And when you do that, it very easily just creates friction from the jump. I wish we could go on for hours. I'm sure we could, and I'm sure you will in other venues. But thank you so much for being here today and hopefully shining a light a little bit more on a really uh, critical problem. Thank you very much to Professor Holt Lundstad, Dr. Morthy, and Senator Murphy. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a conversation with Michael Lee about what he calls scaled secession in the United States. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Hendrickson. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thanks very much to Rebecca Drago for her help with this episode. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.